Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Seven things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Jamie East, and this, this is The Sunday Seven. On today's episode of The Sunday Seven, we do a deep dive on the tragic story of the Titan submarine. We find out why flavourless peas could be a game-changer, get up to speed on the power of a nap, catch up on Nintendo's new announcements, and we hear about the stone swans of Slovakia. That's all still to come on The Sunday Seven on the day that in 1924 saw a tuberculosis vaccine first developed by Professor Albert Calmet and Alphonse Guerin. The last seven days have seen the world's media consumed by the tragic story of the Titan submarine. The small submersible with five passengers on board lost communication last Sunday morning and the week saw a large-scale search and rescue operation mounted by the US Coast Guard. The passengers only had about 90 hours of air when the vessel disappeared, so by Thursday afternoon there really wasn't much hope for a successful rescue. The debris is consistent with the catastrophic loss of the pressure chamber. On behalf of the United States Coast Guard and the entire Unified Command, I offer my deepest condolences to the families. And of course, as we know now, there was a tragic ending. Explorer and host of the Discovery Channel's Expedition Unknown, Joshua Gates, explained to Sky News the number of things that could have gone wrong, but the fact that communication ceased was a real concern in itself. It was well off the bottom when that communication was lost, and so using those multiple redundancies of weight drop systems, Titan should have returned to the surface, right? And so the fact that that hasn't happened opens up this whole other question of what are these other possibilities. Certainly one of those possibilities is a hull failure. Um, That kind of speaks to the carbon fibre design of, of Titan and also a concern in all submersibles, electrical fires, computer failure, things like that. Robert Blasiak is a researcher at the Stockholm Resilience Centre and he specialises in the study of the ocean. He says the tragic part is that the five explorers really didn't need to take the risk of getting into the Titan at all. As an ocean scientist, I'm more familiar with the vehicles that are operated by research agencies and by groups like the Schmidt Ocean Institute that are are really geared towards having consistent and constant contact with the people on on the surface. So uh, the Schmidt Ocean Institute, for instance, they live stream all of their... uh, Uh, deep sea a submersible camera feed so you can be sitting on your sofa at home and watching exploration unfold. Uh, just last month, new hydrothermal vent ecosystems were discovered in the Atlantic. And if you were tuned in to that YouTube channel, you could be exploring it and discovering it in real time together with the world's leading deep sea ecologists. And that, that's a very exciting thing. That being said, I also, if I take off my scientist hat and just put on my kind of normal person hat, I understand the urge to actually be in a vehicle and go down and look for yourself. There are some very positive impulses there, I think, like a fascination with the unknown, a fascination with this deep sea ecosystem, a fascination with history. These are all positive elements, but that also has to be done responsibly.
As vegan and vegetarian meal options become more common, have you ever thought about what the protein in your meatless meal is? Some of it is soya, some, like corn, is derived from a protein created by a mushroom-like fungus, but did you know that the humble pea is a good source? Soya is problematic because the beans tend to be imported from South America and can have an impact on rainforests, whereas the humble pea can be grown right here in Blighty. The biggest issue is the pea flavour. So let's meet Professor Claire Dominey of the John Innes Centre in Norwich, who's been working on getting the flavour gene out of peas. I am delighted to have on the line Professor Claire Dominey. Claire, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Talk us through flavourless peas. We've had the we, we've known the, the flavour gene for a few decades now. Why is it so important that we start stop making flavourless peas? Well, it's because um, I guess the world has changed. Um, there's a huge demand now for protein, plant protein, to replace uh, meat. And pea protein um, ticks many boxes, really. It's got high nutritional value. We've got um, high digestibility protein. We've managed to make that protein even more digestible. So there's a great demand by the food industry to really incorporate this into a wide range of foods. However, at the moment, the amounts that they can add are fairly limited, and the reason for that is because of pea flavour. So um, not everyone wants their foods to taste of peas all the time. There's nothing wrong with the taste of peas if you're eating peas, but if you're eating, uh, for example, a veggie-based burger, um, you might not want it to taste of peas. So we, we have soya, which which is kind of, I guess, like a flavourless bean. Is that is that is that no longer a kind of viable option uh, for the foreseeable future? Um, the issue about soya is really, I think, that people are very anxious to reduce their dependency on soya. Much of that is associated with poor environmental uh, considerations. So, for example, destruction of rainforests and so on and other ecologically sensitive uh, habitats. You were among the team that, that made the breakthrough back in the way back yonder in the 90s to, to create a flavourless peak. Whereabouts is that thinking now? Do we actually have someone making them yet or what's going on at the moment? Well, we identified that variant. Yes, uh, you're correct, uh, back in the 90s. Um, And uh, the thinking at the time was that this would be of great value to the vegetable pea industry. It could increase the amount of time between when they harvested the peas in the fields and they froze them. So it could reduce the rush, if you like, on on getting from the field to the factory. However, when that variant, uh, the so-called flavourless uh, variant went into a breeding program. Uh, the breeders told us some years later that actually what they bred was a totally flavourless vegetable. And of course, that's what the food industry wants now is a completely flavourless protein uh, source or a, a completely flavourless flour. How long before we see see the results of all of this work in the supermarkets? So, yeah, so the, the program uh, which we've just kick-started is actually aimed at improving the digestibility of protein so that we get better value from the amino acids in our diet. So we're talking about adding four different variants into a breeding program. Now, we've already made a good head start on that. So the breeders are really confident that within, it will still take a few years because even no matter how quickly you breed a new variety, you've got to multiply up that seed. So it'll be a few years. So probably we estimate around five uh, before we can really uh, see this coming to fruition. Claire, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Still to come on the Sunday 7, Nintendo springs a surprise, and there's good news about the little news. Pete 
bogs are a limited resource. In the UK, they make up about 10% of the landmass, but they're pretty effective carbon sinks, storing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which can help to reduce global temperatures. Now, a new project at Hatfield Moor in the UK is attempting to provide detailed mapping of the peat bog and an assessment of how effective it might be when it comes to reducing carbon levels in the atmosphere. Professor Fred Worrell, an environmental chemist at the University of Durham, says the balance of managing peat bogs is critical. The great thing about peat bogs is that peat bogs are a big store of carbon, but if they're badly managed, they're a source of carbon to the atmosphere, and if they're well managed, they're a sink of carbon from the atmosphere. So what we want to do is we want to effectively work out what condition they're in and make sure that we can put them into the sink category. UK National Mapping Agency, the Ordnance Survey, is building detailed maps to get a clearer picture of the current state of the bogs. Donna Lindsay is the Head of Environment and Sustainability for the Ordnance Survey, and she says they're bringing all kinds of tech to bear on the project. In terms of the data we're collecting, we're collecting everything from right down on the land, you know, really, really detailed stuff, all the way through the, the data that we collect as a National Mapping Agency, so the mapping information to um, aerial imagery, to hyperspectral data, which is stuff you can see way, way beyond what we see as as humans. One of the issues that can hold back green investment is lack of data. So the peat mapping project is partly designed to provide better and more transparent information about the peat bog environment. Donna says she's hopeful better information can speed that investment. We need them to invest in nature. We need billions of pounds worth of money invested in nature in the UK alone. Um, But actually, there's a trust issue. How do we make sure that this this is all transparent to someone who knows nothing about how you measure ecology or habitat or any of that sort of stuff like that? Actually give them what they need to know and have confidence that their investment is actually delivering the carbon credits they need. It's time for our weekly checkup on the world of tech and gaming and all that kind of stuff with Will Guy. Will, how are you? Yeah, really good. How are you? Pretty good, thank you very much. Not can't complain. I believe we're heading over to the world of Nintendo this week. What's going on? They've taken everybody by surprise. There's a new Super Mario Brothers game coming, which nobody knew anything about. It's a new 2D game. It's called Super Mario Brothers Wonder. It's out globally on October the 20th, and um, it's a bit of a new art style for Mario. Still cartoony, still the same old voice, still a platform game, but it looks slightly different. And everybody's been taken slightly by surprise. It's not just about mushrooms and growing bigger, etc these days there's something called a wonder flower and apparently the wonder flower changes the world i'm not quite sure what that actually means yet uh, speaking of mushrooms and growing bigger that's like the story of my life uh, now switches are pretty ubiquitous on every train journey i've been on in the past 10 years yeah there's 125 million or more of them sold now and what actually appears to be happening which i'm finding quite interesting is loads of the older games from like the playstation 3 and um, games you never thought would make it to a nintendo console are turning up so uh, to Today they announced the Metal Gear Solid collection as well. Oh, yes! Yeah, which people... I'm really looking forward to this one too. The first three Metal Gear Solid games in one collection. And then you've got Batman Arkham Trilogy. So the Arkham games were classic games in the sort of early PS... Late PS3, early PS4 period uh, and they're coming to nintendo consoles for the first time too this is just another example of nintendo basically bringing hits from admittedly five or six years ago from other places but bringing really good really playable handheld versions of these games and is the switch console itself changing at all or is that just like rock solid that's staying the same it, it's been rumored for so long and i think we'll probably see a new handheld console from nintendo next year it would be suicide for them to literally walk away from the switch this is an absolute 
absolute powerhouse for Nintendo now. You had me at Metal Gear Solid, Will. Thanks so much, buddy, and see you next week. Bye-bye. Still to come on the Sunday 7, the signs of napping and some stoned swans in Slovakia. Right after this. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome back. We've all seen the research that suggests a moderate amount of drinking can help improve heart health, although it does also increase cancer risk. But until now, scientists haven't been able to work out why alcohol in moderation might have a positive health effect. A new study looks in a different direction, the brain. And when they did brain scans of light to moderate drinkers, they discovered that those people had reduced stress responses and a lower likelihood of strokes or cardiac arrests. We caught up with one of the scientists behind the study, Associate Director of Nuclear Cardiology at Massachusetts General Hospital and the Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, Michael Osborne. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. For all the drinkers out there, this sounds like absolutely fantastic news. Is this free reign for them to go and get drunk all the time? Is that what we're saying here? No, I I, I would temper that quite a bit. What our aim was in this study was to explore um, the impact of uh, potential therapies on uh, a pathway linking chronic stress to cardiovascular disease. And alcohol has been shown to reduce cardiovascular disease risk. However, the caveat is that that is in light to moderate quantities. Even though we see this benefit on cardiovascular disease, um, light to moderate alcohol still has risks that come with it. And most of the the greatest risk that we identified in this particular study was a a much greater risk of the development of cancer. I'm going to ask the question that most drinkers listening are thinking. What do you consider to be light to moderate consumption, Michael? In this study, we used a range of one to 14 drinks per week. And that really, you know, the the key point there is no more than two per day. Um, However, you know, United States guidelines uh, typically recommend moderate alcohol for women is uh, up to seven drinks a week, whereas for men is up to 14. The granularity of the tool that we uh, had access to in this this large biobank cohort um, didn't allow us to distinguish between seven and 14. So you giveth and taketh away, Michael. On one hand, there's light to moderate alcohol consumption, but on the other hand, you increase the risk of cancer. Is that right? Correct. And, and I think what we, what we have to, um, you know, balance in this, that treating these regions of the brain may lead to beneficial effects on cardiovascular disease. However, we really need to find a therapy that is safer and less dangerous than alcohol. I see. And if lowering stress is the key to cardiovascular health, it's easy to see why alcohol was the first port of call. 
But I guess something like THC or meditation or more sleep or even just being kind could be the answer. <laughs> yeah, so interventions that we have seen um, in our work that have benefited uh, these brain regions are, as you mentioned, stress reduction. It's also shown that exercise um, has beneficial changes on these brain regions. You're sort of um, at a point where it's you're balancing the risk versus benefit of all of these uh, of all of these interventions. And the other potential strategy, you know, that's worth mentioning is you could bypass the brain, right? So for example, statins um, are a drug that many people take that um, attenuate uh, inflammation in the arteries. You know, in the future, could guidelines maybe recommend statins with the inclusion of chronic stress or stress conditions? What this opens the door for is it does show that some intervention can benefit this pathway, and we just need to find the right one. Napping, weirdly, is a hotly contested area of science, not just because of the lure of the sneaky afternoon snooze, but because there are two quite different schools of thought about the benefits of sleeping outside of your normal nighttime pattern. A new study published this week in the journal Sleep Health suggests that daytime naps may help avoid brain shrinkage, particularly as we get a bit older. Previous research had suggested longer naps can be an early symptom of Alzheimer's disease, so it's important to set the timer so you don't drift off for too long. The new study suggests regular daytime power naps of no more than 30 minutes can reduce brain shrinkage significantly, the equivalent to between three and six years difference in brain ageing. Independent sleep expert Dr Neil Stanley spoke to Times Radio's Osama Mir about the benefits of that power nap. It's much better than having sort of a couple of cups of strong black coffee and trying to motor through the day because if you're sleepy, the brain won't sleep. And a 20-minute power nap is like plugging you, your phone in when it's down on the red uh, and you get a big boost and that boost can last three to four hours, whereas drinking caffeine, the benefit may only last 30 minutes if you do actually get a benefit. So a power nap is a great thing. Sleeping longer than about 30 minutes, you risk waking up in your deep restorative sleep, mm. which means that you wake up feeling much worse after your nap than you did before you had your nap. So uh, that's when you think, well, you know, why, why did I bother? So that's why we say 20 minutes means that you don't use up the sleep need at night, so you don't affect your nocturnal sleep, whereas sleeping longer during the day would mean that you're going to get worse sleep or less sleep during the night. Swans are creatures that fascinate humans. Related to ducks and geese, but a separate and distinct subfamily, they famously mate for life, and in England at least, are the property of the king. But in Slovakia, a bunch of swans have gotten themselves into real difficulties. It all started with a field near Kamano in southern Slovakia, which flooded and turned into a lake, which then dried out during a hot summer and instead became a poppy field. Hundreds of swans began eating the poppies, which have addictive properties. They're a natural source of opium, which is an element in drugs including heroin, morphine and codeine. They are dehydrated. The swans lose muscle mass and then they just crawl on the ground. The poppies can be toxic for swans, which are also a protected species in Slovakia. That complicated the process of removing them, so it took four months to get them rescued from their opium den. 
The swans have now been taken to a remote location far from the poppy field where they're being given the chance to sober up. I guess you could say they've gone cold turkey. <laughs> Local farmer Radovan Machalka says they'll be better prepared next time. We assumed they would just fly away, but they didn't. It's a rare case in Slovakia, so we didn't have any experience. Hopefully we'll be smarter in the future. This has been the Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend.